story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. And I'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. I'll tell you how I became the prince of a town called Bel Air. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And as you've come to know, we tell stories about everything here on this show, from history to the arts, sports, and your stories, too. That's the hour in Our American Stories, and we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our newsletter while you're there, and we'll hit you with our best four or five stories every week. And you're listening to the theme song to The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the highly successful television sitcom that ran from 1990 to 1996 and is on perpetually on cable. People always say sometimes you have to hit rock bottom before you make it to the top. Things were no different for rapper-turned-actor Will Smith, and he almost missed his opportunity to be a part of a groundbreaking show. The story we're about to listen to is all about how Will Smith's life got flipped and turned upside down. We'd like to take a minute, just sit right there. Here's Will Smith to tell us how he became the star of the hit TV show called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Before I was getting in trouble with Uncle Phil, I was in trouble with Uncle Sam. Me and Jeff had come out with our smash hit. Parents just don't understand. We made a bunch of money. We won a Grammy. Album was triple platinum. I had motorcycles and cars. I called the Gucci store in Atlanta, and I was like, Hey, will y'all close it down if I bring my friends? And I'm smiling, but that's stupid. We released our next album, and it was like a flop. It was a tragedy. It went like double plastic. I had spent most of my money, like all of it. I spent all my money. And I didn't forget, but I didn't pay the IRS. In my mind, I mean, I wasn't like trying to avoid paying taxes. I was just like, oh, damn, they need their money. The IRS took all, took all of that stuff. So I was like, broke, broke, broke. Being famous and broke is a shitty combination. Cause you're still famous and people recognize you, but they recognize you while you sitting next to them on the bus. And the stuff they ask you to sign on a bus, you know, like, oh, can you sign my baby? That's a Sharpie. I, I probably shouldn't just write on the baby with that. Oh, you too big to sign my baby. Well, no, nah, I mean, you know, so I signed it. So I was like laying around and my girlfriend was like, Dude, we're not doing this. Like, you're not just going to be laying around this house all day. You're going to go do something. And I was like, what? What am I supposed to do? Go where people is is doing it. Wh- where are people doing it? Go to the Arsenio Hall show. Just go stand around at the Arsenio Hall show. Yes. That's stupid. Bring it up. So I went to the Arsenio Hall show, and I met a dude named Benny Medina. Benny Medina is the real-life Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, except he actually went from Watts to Beverly Hills. Same basic concept, way shorter distance. I meet Benny, and he pitches me the idea for this show, and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm not an actor. I'm like, cool. And he says, hey, you know, I want you to meet Quincy Jones. Quincy Jones is producing with me. So I find myself at Quincy's, and there's actors and artists and celebrities and politicians. like everybody's at Quincy's house. It's like the whiz without the costumes. So Benny walks me in and introduced me to Quincy. I'm like, hey Q, what's up, man? He said, hey man, you know, I saw your music videos. I love, I love what you're doing. I love what you're doing. Tell me your rap name again. They call me the Fresh Prince. All right, good. That's what we're gonna call the show. 
and he handed me a screenplay for a failed Morris Day pilot. Like, I don't have the time. So, I need you to do this. I need you to go ahead, take a few minutes, take 10 minutes, study the script, and I'm gonna clear all the stuff out the living room, and we're gonna have everybody sit down in the living room, we're gonna do an audition. He had movers that could reset his furniture. I was like, this dude is real. So it goes out, tells everybody, come on, come on, come on. And I was like, hey Q, hold up, man, hold up. I'm not ready to do no audition. And he's like, oh, all right, all right. All right. Uh, well, what you need? Tell me what you need. Just set the meeting for a week and I could do it. He said, yeah, yeah, you know, Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC, is out there. I'll get him to schedule for next week. And then you know what's gonna happen? Something gonna come up and then he's gonna have to reschedule. Oh, yeah, yeah, so three, so three weeks from now, Q, we can do it three weeks from now. I said, yeah, 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 three weeks from now be good. Or you could take 10 minutes right now and you can change your life forever. I was like, yes, give me 10 minutes. I said yes, and I let it rip. And I got to the end, and everybody is clapping. Quincy looks at Brandon Tartikoff, the head of NBC. Did you like it? And Brandon said, yeah, yeah, I liked it, Quincy. He says, no, did you like it? And he's like, yeah, I liked it. He's like, good, you're his lawyer. Draw me up something right now. Damn, Quincy ordering other people lawyers around. <laughs> like, that's his lawyer, Quincy, leave that man alone. And Quincy turned to me, and he was like, hey, Will, you got a lawyer? Quincy, I'm broke. If I had a lawyer taking 5%, he'd owe me money right now. He was like, all right, and he turned to his assistant. He was like, get Will a lawyer. Quincy had been drinking. You know, it's probably obvious from the story, but he had been tasting. He, he had wet his beak a little bit that night. Yeah, so the lawyers go out in the limo and they're drawing up the first deal for the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Quincy is like popping up at the window. No paralysis, do analysis. No paralysis, do analysis! <laughs> like, how did he make Thriller like this? So we got the lawyers draw up something. Ken Hertz looked it over for me, Brandon Tartikoff, and we took a picture and we signed the, the, the basic deal for the Fresh Prince. And three months later, we were shooting the pilot. And that's the story of how I became the Prince of Bel-Air. So the moral of the story is, Always say yes, and I guess, listen to your girlfriend. <laughs>And it doesn't get better than that, folks. And that's an entrepreneur's story right there. And that's what we do here. I mean, the arts show business, the business part. By the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org, type in Sly Stallone, because you hear the same story from Stallone at that key moment in his life when he had this script. And if you remember, Stallone kept, he, well, they wanted to buy the script from him. And they kept saying 50000 then 100000 then 200000 And Stallone's like, man, that was more money than I was ever going to see in my whole life. But remember what he said. He said, my goodness, if that's a big hit and I'm not in it, I'm going to jump off a bridge. And so he just said, no, I'm not selling it. I got to be in the movie. And that business decision he made changed his life. The decision Will Smith made changed his. And thank goodness he had a great advocate, a great businessman. Quincy Jones wasn't just a musician, folks. And Benny Medina, well, he's the real thing. And look up his name. What a story there. We should do that one, too. This is Lee Habib, Will Smith's story, here on Our American Stories. Here it is, a clue slightly transformed. Just a bit of a break from the norm. Just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance?
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our American Dreamers series, sponsored, as always, by the great folks at the Job Creators Network, working to effectuate public policy that helps small businesses grow into bigger ones. And now our own Alex Cortez brings us this edition. Hey, you're going out and drilling a hole in the ground and expecting something to come out. If you're... If you're not praying about it, you got a you got a problem. You're listening to Jeff Sparks, one of the 12 family members in a 29-person oil and gas exploration company out of West Texas called Discovery Operating. And on this interesting day, I was surrounded by seven of them Sparks at one table. Jeff is in the second generation of their three generations in the business. It is the firstborn son of patriarchs Don and Gwen. My dad was basically an entrepreneur, so my first job, I was seven years old, and he had a washeteria, and I just worked for tips. I didn't get paid anything. Now, my deal at that time is he would buy the pop, I could sell the soda, and I got 50% of the profit. I got 50% of the sales. I got 50% of gross. I made a deal as, as long as my brother got the other 50%. <laughs> and here's Don's brother, Bynum. Well, I'd first like to say that I'm Don's much younger brother. <laughs> Six years. So when he talks about the fact that he sold soda pop and I got 50% of it, I would have been one at that time. So I don't really remember that story. But I feel like it's true. He's been a great big brother to me. No matter the truth, we do know this. Don's work in scheming would be illegal now. Working at that tender age and without the minimum wage. I understand child labor today, and in my opinion, it's a shame. It's a shame that young people can't have opportunities to learn at an earlier age. There was a guy that would come in frequently, and knowing dry cleaning, I understood clothing. He had some of the nicest clothes that we took care of, and he was the biggest tipper that I ever had. So that made a impression. And so I started looking and found out that what he did in the oil business was a shooter. Now most people don't know what a shooter is, but in the early days, that's the way they stimulated the whales. And they did that with nitroglycerin. These guys would carry nitroglycerin in a truck out, drop it in the whale board, and that's the way the whales were stimulated. Essentially, they were detonating dangerous explosives. Most shooters didn't survive to have long lives, but they made good money during the time period that they did that. When I was in eighth grade, I was asked to write a report and list two things that I might want to do. I came up with this one, and of course my mother's family was a farming family, so I had those two. When I learned all about what a shooter did, I decided, you know, running around with nitroglycerin was probably not what I really wanted to do. But I did 
read about a petroleum engineer, and that's the way I decide that. Petroleum engineers design and develop methods for extracting oil and gas from below the Earth's surface. I joined the Navy in 1957 when I graduated from high school. I was going to see the world. I wasn't planning on meeting Gwen and getting married, but uh, that was the. <laughs> but that's all right. It worked out just fine. What was Don planning on more of a bachelor experience around the world? I, well, I don't know. I'm not saying I have no idea what it'd been like. That's for sure. Well, our first date, we were double dating, and I had a date with one of his fraternity brothers, and we played bridge. And and since he knew I played bridge, his folks asked him about a week or so later, did he want to play bridge, and he couldn't find any of his friends, and so he called me, and so our first actual date was playing bridge with his parents. <laughs> How about that? Was Gwen nervous? I was nervous, but I really did like his parents a lot. She made that comment more than once, that she wasn't sure about me, but she sure liked the folks. I came here with Shell for a short period of time. Then the service called me and went in active duty. In the service, I moved around quite a bit, but most of the time I was on a ship. The moving was up to her. When we got back to Midland, we'd been in Rhode Island, we'd been in California, we'd been in Washington State and Virginia. She had had to move all those times. We got to Midland and I was with Shell. But as you looked at the major oil company, you realized if you stayed, you were going to be moving. We liked Midland, Texas. We chose to stay here. When we made the decision we were going to stay in Midland, we just decided how we were going to do it. And that's the way we got started with Discovery Operating. That's certainly one way to do it, to create a business where you want to stay. A very risky way. We had about $10,000 in the bank, and so we decided that that was enough that we could live on for a year if I took on some more piano students. So I increased my enrollment for teaching piano and uh, we were able to make it that year and things were going pretty good after the first year and so we were able to do it. You couldn't help but be a little bit nervous but I really don't remember being very worried about it. I just, we're kind of survivors. I just knew that we could do whatever we had to do. And the whole family agreed about the greatest trial that they've survived. Here's Jeff. The bust of 1986, where the oil price dropped from $30 down to eight. So um, <clears throat> when your income is based off oil and gas and it goes from 30 to eight, well, you, you basically lost 65% of your income. So. Um, when that happened, um, and, uh, and Dad and I and Kevin uh, switched weekends that we would be out pumping. And, and buying them. And buying them. 
This was a running family joke throughout the interview. For some reason, everybody kept forgetting poor Bynum. Bynum went to the field some, too. <laughs> we all went to the field. And, I mean, the income dried up, and then he was born in April of 86. Jeff's first child, Jared. So, it was, timing was not real good, but, <laughs> so, Dad... Dad said, well, Kevin and I were going to take pay cuts because we, we just were. That was the, we were principals, but, um, and by no, we're, we're all principals, and so we were taking pay cuts. But Dad set the staff down, said, you know, things aren't as rosy as what they should be, and um, we can all take uh, a pay cut or I'm going to have to let one person go and they elected to all take a pay cut. That's an expanded family. We feel like Discovery is ex an expanded family and really we believe that and the people that work here are good, honest, hardworking people. You don't have to worry about if they call in and say, you know, I'm sick today, they're sick. And, uh, and you can depend on them to get whatever needs to be done. It's a great atmosphere to work in. And even then, when we all had to do that, nobody complained. We worked it out, and it worked fine. And you're hearing and listening to the Sparks family, and they have an energy exploration company in Midland, Texas, called Discovery Operating and you just heard what so many family businesses go through. And it is a family. And everybody took pay cuts together. And there was no one, no one fired when oil prices, well, like just dumped out from 30 to $8 a barrel. A catastrophe, if that's your business. And when we come back, more of our American Dreamers story, the Sparks family story, here on Our American Stories. To hear more stories like this, follow us on Facebook, and go to our website at OurAmericanNetwork.org to sign up for our newsletter so that we can send you our best stories every week. More of Our American Stories after the break. Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the Sparks family, whose West Texas energy company, Discovery Operating, has 12 family members in it across three generations. We return to Bynum Sparks. I worked in the panhandle on a different farm and ranch. It was on my dad's side of the family in the summers. They were trying to teach us to make a living, I think. I made a dollar and a quarter an hour. And Don didn't tell this part, but he asked the uncle that he worked for why he only made a dollar and a quarter an hour when he was doing the same work that some of the other... $200 a month is what I got. Okay. Well, he said, Uncle Luther told Don the reason was is because our dad did not want us making so much money that we did not want to go to college. And so, so that's, you know, that's, that's I got a dollar and a quarter an hour. So... 
Anyway. And here's Jeff on his first job. I mowed yards in the summertime with two younger brothers, and we had, gosh, we even had business cards made up to Sparks Lawn Service or Sparks Brothers Lawn Service. And we had a pretty big size business. Oh, we had three lawnmowers. Just two that would operate at one time. <laughs> Mom and Dad bought the lawnmowers, paid for the gas. We had no expenses. You know, I, I, we learned how to work. We just didn't really learn how the profit loss was because there was no loss. It was all profit, even at $3 a yard. So I was going to be a petroleum engineer. It was between that and a musician. And and I looked at what most musicians make and I looked at what petroleum engineers make and decided I'll do this as a hobby and I'll be a petroleum engineer and make some money. This money thing seems to be a common story in the Sparks family. It, it, yeah. It wasn't just money. I mean, it was... You looked at, if, if you were successful in the music business, and you looked at what was going on in the music business in the late 70s, you're traveling around nine months out of the year. Uh, they were notorious of not having a good family life at all, or getting into drugs or whatever. It just didn't seem to be a lifestyle, because I really... Uh, wanted to have a family. I wanted to get married and have a family and just be a dad. Ooh, not many young men talk that way. I didn't. I didn't admit to it <laughs> when I was younger. I mean, that is not something that I was going to go out and talk about. But it was in the back of my mind. Here's the kid who exists because Jeff thought that way. Jared. Remember when I was young, my nana, the slave driver, uh, <laughs> I would spend the summer working across all the yards. That's the second comment about you being tough. So, so you're the toughest mom. Just because I am. <laughs> so, but, but it was, it was actually a really nice experience to grow up. I literally grew up next door to my grandparents, right next to my aunt and uncle. I saw all my cousins. When I was looking at going to college, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. I had kind of an interest in computer and electrical stuff, but my grandfather was like, well, why don't, you know, why don't we go to lunch? He took me to, <laughs> took me to the petroleum club, and he sat down and was like, well, tell me, you know, why, why were you thinking about you know, doing computer or electrical engineering? And I said, oh, I don't know. I've got an interest in it. He goes, well... You know, have you seen some of the statistics? And he showed me this piece of paper, and it said, you know, like at University of Texas, you know, the average, like, ninety-two percent of graduating seniors had a job, and computer and electrical was like forty-six percent. And you look at the average starting salary, petroleum was up there near the top. And I was like, well, maybe I should think about petroleum. Don was. Uh... Pretty well prepared for this supposedly casual lunch with his grandson. Well, I mean, I 
uh, you were on the you were on the advisory board. For yeah, the I, yeah, I was I was on the advisory board from the University of Texas so it was Petroleum Engineering. <laughs> so so I had all the I have all the information, and um, yeah, I wanted to make a good case because I really wanted to be a petroleum engineer. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to the petroleum clubs, and I, I assume it's a nice place. So I'm sure a part of you decided you didn't take them to McDonald's or Chick-fil-A for lunch, right? You, you took them to a place. Hey, look what this career can bring you. That's well, that's true. And I've, uh, I've actually, I take all my grandchildren there and and have a talk with them before they go to college. Now, I haven't been able to get any others to be petroleum engineers yet, but I still got one more shot, and uh, uh, and she'll be graduating next year, so I've got one I'll be taking to the petroleum club, and we'll have our down-to-earth talk. I'm still twisting arms to try to see if I can convince her. I wish I had known this, because she came into accounting the other day to get some accounting and finance advice. So. Looks like we're up against each other. We should compete within the same company. Yeah. That's exactly right. But you These never, are good you never want to be competing with Paul. Yeah. <laughs> After a couple summers working for Discovery, I kind of thought I wanted to try something different. So I actually went to go intern with a major oil company. And I interned with Chevron really enjoyed the experience and I said well I want to see something even different I want to go work offshore so the next summer I worked with Chevron again but they put me in Lafayette Louisiana working offshore but when it came time to looking at where to go work I had two offers I could work for Chevron or I had a, a job actually with Discovery Operating and I'll be candid the the job offer with Discovery was actually better but I had a desire to maybe work overseas I had an expectation of what it was going to be like to work with the family. It looked good, but I just knew that I was going to be in Midland probably my entire life. And at that point, I wasn't sure if that was what I wanted. I enjoyed my time working for Chevron, learned a lot. I was advancing up the ranks. I spent almost 10 years at Chevron. Got to the point where I had built my own team. I had a, three engineers, a geologist, and a tech that most of them I had hired myself. And I had been told that I had potential to go pretty high up. They wanted to put me in some special programs, but the programs were the program that my grandfather had talked about. You're gonna be moving, and you're gonna be moving often. Whenever the company says you move, you move. And I told them, I don't wanna do that. I was in Houston at the time. That's where I met my wife. We had our first two kids there. I enjoyed being in Houston. It was in Texas, it was close to get home to see family. And I said, I, I'm not sure I wanna go any further up. I could start to see also some of the politics starting to break through. I could play the game. I could probably play the game as good as anybody, but I didn't like to have to play the game because it was frustrating when I grew up and saw how they worked business at Discovery Operating and then seeing it from Chevron going, those are some stupid decisions. Why are you doing that? because I was relying on seeing what it was like working at Discovery. One example was at Chevron, I had seen it where they would drill wells 
knowing full well that they probably weren't going to make money, but they had committed to Wall Street that they were going to drill X number of wells. And they were going to drill those wells whether they were good or not. That just didn't sit well with me. And when we come back, more of this remarkable, actually delightful family. And by the way, that's what we like to share with you, that that families work here in this country. They're not perfect families. There aren't any. But my goodness, the beauty, the joy that family can bring. And by the way, family businesses can be a lot of fun. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the Sparks family story, Midland, Texas, in a way. The story of all those families there here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of the Sparks family in Midland, Texas. When we last left off, Jared Sparks was rising up with the energy giant Chevron, but the prospect of having to move a lot and the politics inside a big company was starting to wear on him. It was 2015. The oil price had collapsed again. I wasn't worried about losing my job, but I knew being a supervisor, we were going to have to do some heavy layoffs. I was told 30 to 40 percent. I had been home for Christmas and my family sat down with me and said, you know, we're really proud of you and everything that you're doing at Chevron, but we just want you to know you're always welcome to come back and work for the family. Go back to work in Houston after Christmas and some of the details start to work out. They were going to offer more or less a severance package for people and they can volunteer to leave. Doesn't mean that Chevron was going to let you leave, but you could raise your hand and, and ask to be let go. That's quite a strange thing to say. Can I be let go pretty please? And I looked at what my package would be worth, and I was like, well, that'd be enough to definitely move back to Midland. And my wife, she's an only child. Her parents lived in Tomball, which was the Houston area, but it's still a 45-minute hour drive to go see him. And... I said, well, maybe we should move back to Midland. She goes, oh, I don't know. Well, let's pray about it. So we prayed about it for a good week, hoping just that maybe something would show us what we needed to do. We'd gone to church on that Sunday. Our pastor, he'd been on sabbatical for a few weeks. He comes back, it was his first sermon, and it was from Ezra, which is not a book of the Bible that I could recall ever having a sermon being preached from. The sermon was essentially on stepping out in faith. It was the time when the Jews were post-Babylonian conquest. Nebuchadnezzar has passed. Cyrus is allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem if they want to, to rebuild the temple. And Ezra is talking about the Jews that step out and return home. He finishes the sermon by saying, you know, the Lord may be calling you to step out in faith and do something radical. It may mean you need to leave Houston's First Baptist. You may need to leave Houston. <laughs> and I, I, I look at my wife, and my wife looks at me, and we're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I think that's our answer. So we decided that day we're going to see if we can be let go uh, so that we can move to Midland. So the next day, Monday, I go in, I talk to my boss, and I say, you know, hey, boss, I... I think I'm going to raise my hand and be be asked to let go. 
He goes, really? Man. Wow. Uh, did not see that coming. Well, I'm really glad you came and talked to me today because we were being asked by the executive management above me to start locking people in positions. People that we said, we need business continuity. You were the first person on my list that I was going to lock into his role so you don't have to go through this lengthy layoff process. But that means that you weren't, you weren't be eligible to leave and get paid. But since you came and talked to me today, now I can let him know that I don't need to lock your position down and we'll do something else. He's like, if you'd waited one more day, I, it would have been set in stone. You, you wouldn't have gotten paid to leave. And things just really seemed to work out. The Lord had opened up all the right doors for me to move to Midland. I can tell you, since I've been here coming up on two years with Discovery, it was absolutely the right decision. I've enjoyed being back in town. I know my wife has enjoyed being here. It took a few months to get adjusted, but she's enjoying being close to family, having the help with the kids. Well, that was one of the things you forgot to tell him. Our offering free babysitting. Free babysitting. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, pretty much. We pretty much. And 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 the other thing he forgot is when he told his in-laws that you were moving to Midland. They said, Okay. Okay, we'll move. And my they live in Midland. My they in, made it. They my made in-laws, in-laws moved. They yeah, did. the in-laws actually got here before we did. I mean, I gave up, I'll, I'll be candid again, I gave up I gave up a bigger paycheck being at Chevron, but I think that the intangibles of being close to family know that, you know, if my kids grow up to want to do baseball or soccer, that I can go do that and not worry about being overseas somewhere, because I knew that's where I was going to end up having to go is overseas at Chevron. So... It's kind of funny. You wanted to go overseas by the time you were going to get offered. You didn't want to go overseas. I didn't want to go anymore. <laughs> Next up is Jared's cousin, Gray. Very similar to Jared. Grew up at the compound. Uh, you know, grew up across the street from my cousins with my grandparents right there. Worked in the yard from as young as I can remember. I was out in the yard with working with Nana. I won't call her a slave driver, but... <laughs> but he's pretty nice. But <laughs> and when I was really young, I wanted to be an astronomer. I loved looking at the stars, and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world until my dad kind of told me the numbers of what you know astronomers make as opposed to what everyone else makes. And, and so from a pretty early age, I decided, okay, maybe that's not it. And so I decided Discovery seems like a pretty cool option. And where I met my wife was at school. We met on my spring break trip my senior year. We were on a cruise and I saw her and pretty much fell in love right then and there. I saw her from across the dance floor and fell in love right there. And I knew I was coming back to Midland after I graduated. You know, this was March of my senior year and I knew coming back to Midland, my options were going to be slim. <laughs> and so when I saw her, I, I locked in, and, and <laughs> I, was, I was going after her. And three, four months later, we were engaged and been back at Discovery for just over two years now. And Alex, the in-law, what my family calls the outlaws, is crazy enough. 
that she actually wants to work with them sparks too. My direct boss is Bynum's son-in-law, so he he gets it too that he like he's a part of it, but also can look at them some you know the sparks sometimes and go oh those silly sparks you know <laughs> it's fun. That's where I put you on the spot. What's so silly about him? <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> There's a stubborn line in there, but it's but it's a good stubborn. It's a good stubborn. No, but they they work so well. They do though. They work so well together though. Even though when, like, you, you know, you can tell if if one has a differing opinion than another, it, they always manage to work through it and get to a good common goal. But it is fun to see how many sparks you can get on a on a subject. I love it. <laughs> Here's Bynum Sparks speaking because Gwen thought he should. Things I need to say. Just thanks everybody. Because we've been monopolizing. Well, I enjoy listening. (laughs) I think one thing I would like to to say: we were very fortunate in the home that where we were raised, and um, so I'd like somebody. I'm not sure I can do it, but. Somebody to talk about how dad took care of mother. Oh, well, I will do that. My mother had Alzheimer's, and she lived, probably had it longer than 10 years, but she got to where she couldn't uh, speak or do anything. My dad took care of her day in, day out. He'd get up, get her up, help dress her, put on her makeup, so they could go out to lunch and have lunch. He just took care of her, never was embarrassed. And when my second son, Kevin, when he got married, he wanted his grandfather to be the best man. And the reason he said is he showed what the marriage vows are about. Does that work? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so, uh, Gwen's take on that was a little better. She didn't think this is funny, but I do. Uh, she, but when we got married, she she we we told it in our family. We don't really don't really believe in divorce. We think the wedding vows are important. But whenever she let me know that her family didn't believe in divorce either, murder was okay. <laughs> I took that. Literally. And it's worked real well, as you can see. I'm going to say the last thing if we're finishing up. I look around this table. We've got three people that will lead this company in the future. Gray, Jared, and Alex. Engineering, land, accounting. How could, it, how could I be any more blessed as to see the future in the good hands? You can't ask for a more blessing than that. And for people who can't see it because we're on the radio, you're crying talking about it. Yeah, well, I try not to. Uh, there's something about getting older that your emotions sometimes kind of get, get, uh, get the best of you. And what a story. What a family. And we're tearing up here a little bit, too. 
just listening to a tough Texas man, a tough Midland Texas man, holding back tears, looking at the blessings of God and the blessings of a beautiful family. And by the way, Kevin Sparks told a local newspaper, quote, one of the reasons I believe we're able to continue to work together is because we all share a common faith in Christ. It's that concept of serving others, and I think it would be really challenging to work as a family for as many years as we have if that wasn't our shared commonality. His mother Gwen added that the grace to forgive each other is another reason the family has been so successful in business. How to be a family, we can all learn from a family like the Sparks family, their story, Midland, Texas's story, in a way, here on Our American Stories. stories where we love to hear your stories about a loved one who's passed or about your very first job as a kid. And we've done a whole lot of stories from you and by you in your own voice. And today, well, this story is about a quirk. Yes, a quirk. And we've all got them. And we've all got a story around our quirks. And our families have certainly stories about our quirks. Well, a listener and a friend in Chicago, Nick Zagoda, joins us now against his wife's advice to discuss his hygiene quirk. Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lee. It's always good to speak to you. You bet. And Nick, we hear that great Chicago accent, and we love accents on this show. And uh, tell us a little bit and tell the audience what you do for a living and why your wife just implored you not to do this. I've been a lifetime Chicagoan. As you can tell, I've tried to lose this accent for 60 years, and I gave up about 20 years ago. And... uh, 20 years ago when I was 40, I gave up. I'm 60 now. I've lived here my whole life, and uh, and it, it's part of me, I guess, and I can't get rid of it. I have a law practice downtown in Chicago. I've got two partners, and we've got 11 other lawyers that work for us. We're corporate and transactional lawyers who do sophisticated uh, corporate and transactional and M&A work on a, on a daily basis, both nationally and internationally. And when I told my wife, my friend Lee wanted to speak about this today, she said, are you out of your mind telling people about this? If I were you, I'd be hiding it. <laughs> but I don't think I've got anything to hide. I don't think, I think everybody's got something, and, and this happens to be mine. Well, that's good, and you're owning it, and I love that. So let's talk about it, this hygiene thing you have. There's some kind of story that encapsulates it all about you and a commuter train. Tell the story, Nick. Yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not so good with people and uh, shaking hands and eating at communal tables and et cetera, et cetera. People I know are fine. People I don't know, I have no idea where it started. I just uh, don't feel good in positions where I don't know people and we're very close. And I never take the train. I've been driving downtown from my suburban home where my wife and I have lived for 38 years to uh, downtown Chicago every day for 38 years. And my wife will tell me on occasion, what are you crazy? You're complaining about the traffic. Why don't you jump on the train and i say cast the train we're just close to people we don't know if we could get a private train car 
where I could pick the people that come on the train car that I knew that they don't have to be young or old, rich or poor, nice or mean. I just have to know them. Unfortunately, that's not the way the commuter system works in Chicago. So they're with strangers on the train. And last winter, it was a horrible day. We had two or three feet of snow, and it was still snowing. And I said to my wife, I have to get downtown today. And she said, well, get on the train. It'll, you know you're going to get there. It's not going to take you two and a half hours to get there and two and a half hours to get home. And I said, Ken, I just can't do the train. She said, you have to do the train. It's crazy to drive. It's, it, you're, it, you might get stuck downtown. You don't know what's going to happen. Well, I got on a train. I got on a train at my little suburban train stop. It's about a 35-minute train ride. I was fine till the next stop. A woman got on and sat next to me. I texted my wife. I said, Kath, I, I don't know if this is going to work. There's a woman sitting next to me on a train. She said, Nick, you're on the train. There's going to be someone sitting next to you. Just relax. You're fine. The woman takes her coat off. She puts her takes her coat off, and it's on my leg. I text my wife, Kath, there's a woman next to me on the train. She take, she's taking her coat off, and now her coat is on my leg. And Kathy texts back very nicely. Please just ask her to remove your coat from her coat from your knee, and everything will be fine. And I said, ma'am, pardon me, but your coat is on my knee. And she gives me a glaring look, and she moves her coat from my knee. Then she starts coughing. And I said to Kathy in the text, Kath, now she's coughing. And I'm getting freaked out here. I think you're going to have to pick me up at the next stop. And she said, okay, listen. If you think I'm going to pick you up at the next stop, you're out of your mind. So you <laughs> figure this out, look out the window, ignore the coffin, read your book. I'm trying to read my book. I can't read my book. The woman's coughing. So now she starts sneezing. This is two stops later. So I tell my wife, the University of Chicago is between my house and downtown Chicago. I say, Kathy, you have to pick me up. I have to get off the train at the University of Chicago. This woman is, now she's sneezing, and she's not covering her nose, and, and I'm in a mess, and I don't know what to do, and I can't. There's nowhere to go. There's people standing in the aisles of the train. I can't possibly move. I can't do You have to pick. And she said, listen, genius, if I drive to the University of Chicago, it'll take me two hours to get there. Then it'll take both of us two and a half or three hours to get home. So here's what I suggest you do. I suggest... You forget about this for a while. And get, I said, you're not going to come and say, she, I am not going to come and save you. She did not come and save me. I survived. Rather scarred, I might add. But I survived. <laughs> went downtown, went straight to uh, the Union League Club in Chicago, where I've been a member forever. Took a shower, changed my clothes, and was able to go to work for a full day without working. But thank goodness I have a change of clothes there. Or otherwise, that would never, ever would I have been able to last a full day. And thanks for that story, and you're listening to Nick Zagoda, and he's a lawyer in Chicago and a friend. And this segment, well, it's my quirk is what we're calling it, and we want to hear your quirk and send them to ouramericannetwork.org. We've all got one, folks, and just confess. Confess, share it with us. I mean, and I love the way Nick owns his. He just owns his. One day I'll write up mine. Uh, mine's just as embarrassing as his, and it's got to be embarrassing. And so whatever your quirk is, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Nick Zagoda's quirk, well, a lot of our quirks, those of us who are neat freaks, and I am one, I never step into a public shower without something on my feet, ever. People look at me funny. I don't care. I'm wearing something on my feet or I ain't getting in. My quirk, just one of them, 
here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. Alright, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. 
I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you gonna do? You're gonna be a vet like your dad? And, you know, being the 13 year old still dreamer. I was like, no, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only going to take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror, and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. If you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. If anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr. <laughs> wow. Orr and Ballon Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below us. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that held other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. If there wasn't a Marty McSorley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. 
McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard, almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes up. Now, I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings, 3 o'clock. You've got to go fight the toughest kid in the school on the playground, and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping. The night before a game, and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're... 10, 12 years into the league, you've had your shoulder fixed two or three times, you've broken your hand a couple of times, there's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you, he wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice words at the edge of the circle and they drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash the stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream... This is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here. And for anybody who loves the sport, well, you're loving this. And for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport, which I did, I went to a few Ranger games when I lived in New York, but I always wondered, why all the fights and who are these guys? Well, let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler. Here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers. Some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers. Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policemen for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analysing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skilled players, perhaps, who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without... Guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers, he wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky. I mean, he had Semenko, and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Semenko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What do you think Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you, and if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career. Because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. 
So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact, the first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. The Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them and and their owner had said, this isn't gonna happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up. Because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could duke it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point, my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just going to beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's sort of dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger-Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was, like, that, that, that uber-violence through the 80s as well. Like anything... It, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and, you know, I almost had to pull them all of hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting, and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. 
As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives. The story of hockey in America, here on Our American Stories, continues after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same within hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sport. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. 
I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than, you know, to, to wonder who you're going to fight or if you're going to have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything. Like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. It's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on, uh, on that player, on those people than what people uh, think of it as. The fights also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaForge spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL. But after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain 
on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves, the Enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the Enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the Enforcer defends, we would love the Enforcer because the Enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an Enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ Enforcer and, as you will hear, all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL. Easy. 
Couldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I'd loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. <sighs> With a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself. And uh, a little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be, more rules, more enforcement. We wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcer stories.